Hello and welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. I'm Liberty Vittert, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review, and I, along with my co-host and editor-in-chief, Shali Meng, are speaking with two people who are at the forefront of analysis on public opinion across America and the world. What do people really think about climate change? Are we willing to have romantic or otherwise relationships with those of different political views? When has a poll given such dramatic results that these pollsters haven't even wanted to release the data? We find out the answers to these questions and many more with Kristen Soltis Anderson and Cliff Young. Kristen is a pollster at Echelon Insights and author of The Selfie Vote. She is also the host of SiriusXM's The Trendline with Kristen Soltis Anderson. Cliff is a pollster and social scientist. He is the president of Ipsos Public Affairs in the U.S. and an adjunct professor at the Johns Hopkins SAS School. Well, I sort of wanted to start off with, I I don't want to call it the elephant in the room because it's really not, but you all are both pollsters. And, you know, I feel like during the 2016-2020 elections, there was this, there were lots of newspaper articles about it. There was sort of this feeling of a public distrust of a lot of pollsters because people felt that they were wrong in 2020 or 2016. So how do you all react to that? Do you feel like it's fair? Um, If so, how do we fix it? And what's your sort of feeling? Is it blown out of context? I feel like people's frustration with polling is somewhat justified, right? If you have been tuning into the news and week after week, you are seeing numbers put forward that say Hillary Clinton is up by six, seven, eight points, or Joe Biden is up by six, seven, eight points. You are not expecting it to be a long night on election night, and you're certainly not expecting the opposing candidate to win. You know, before 2016, if I was traveling somewhere and I got in an Uber at the airport and someone asked me what I did for my job, I would say, oh, I'm a pollster. And it would usually lead to an interesting conversation. And I've now just started saying that I'm a market researcher, which is another completely honest but less loaded term for our profession, because I just don't want to get into the, well, why were you guys all wrong in 2016 or 2020 conversation constantly? But I don't begrudge anyone who does wonder that. Um, But what I do find frustrating is that when you take a look, for instance, at 2016, I acknowledge completely that I was surprised by the result on election night. But in 2020, I wasn't. And what's troubling about 2020 is that the polls broadly, and when I say the polls, I'm not talking about my polls or Cliff's polls. I'm talking about sort of broad polling averages, major media, you know, network polls. When you took a look at that data, there were a lot of states where actually the polling was great. And, and if you looked at, say, the Georgia runoff that came later, something like that should be insanely challenging to get right. And yet the polls broadly said it would be a very close race. And it was a very close race. Democrats picked up two Senate seats by by relatively narrow margins. So it's what's challenging for the polling industry now is that in 2016, the polls were off, but in a way that the industry was able to explain, uh, we don't have enough people in our samples who don't have college degrees. So if we fix that, hopefully that that will fix everything. In 2020, you had a state like Georgia where the polls were pretty good, and then a state like Florida where they weren't as good. Or you'd have a state like Arizona where the polls were actually pretty good, and then a state like Texas where they were off by quite a bit. 
And there's not a simple demographic explanation like there was in 2016, where you could say, oh, it's all of those, you know, blue wall, upper Midwest states, white non-college educated voters were being undercounted. I don't think that there's a good explanation or a single unified theory for why in some states this time around, the polls were uh, overly generous to Biden in a way perhaps they shouldn't have been. Cliff, I'd be interested in your take on this. I think we have a very high bar as pollsters. Uh, We are the guardians of public opinion, right? And we have in that sense of public trust. And it's less of an issue of how close we are to the actual election and much more uh, do we pick the right winner. And so in some ways we were less accurate this last electoral cycle and closer in 2016, but we picked the wrong winner obviously in 2016. I think that's a reasonable bar. And if I were an average citizen, uh, I would be critical. And if I was a client, I'd be critical as well. Uh, But I wanna make a distinction from an analytical perspective. And when we say the polls, we're not saying the polls as in surveys because surveys do very well, right? And indeed you just take some of the most recent experience um, with COVID and vaccination rates and related sort of metrics the surveys are nailing it. Um, And so the survey in and of itself, that is the instrument we used to capture a representative picture of the population, of the universe in question, um, I think we're fine. Cliff, could you explain to the audience the difference between the survey and the poll? Yeah, I'm not making a distinction between the two, actually. They're equivalent, right? Um, A poll is sort of a, a simple proxy typically used to explain survey. Uh, We usually call it a poll where we're talking about public opinion and and political um, surveying, right? The distinction I want to make is election polling specifically, that is not just taking a representative sample of the population, but trying to ascertain who will show up on election day is the real challenge we have. We're trying to predict a universe in the future, not the present. That's the tricky business. I would love to second that because I think, and this is where I will give a a brief defense of election pollsters for as as maligned as we are and as semi-justified as that is, you know, there are a lot of places in the market research and opinion research world that will never face the kind of accountability that an election pollster faces. If I go tomorrow and I become the head of market research for Frito-Lay and I go do a study and I find that 72% of Americans say that they love salt and vinegar potato chips, there's no day in which every American's mind will be read and it will be known whether or not, in fact, 72% of Americans like salt and vinegar potato chips or not. It is really only election polling where you are trying to understand public opinion, and then there becomes a moment when you open the Christmas present and you find out what's inside and you hope that you were right. And additionally, you can't just make assumptions about the population you're surveying on the grounds that they look demographically representative of really anything, because there is still that who does and doesn't turn out to vote question. And I think a lot of the general public, when they see the polls talked about in the news, What they don't realize is that it is a mix of an art and a science, Um, that the art is the pollster making assumptions about who is and is not likely to vote and and how they're going to decide to adjust their samples accordingly or pull their samples or or whatever that looks like um, to adapt to that reality. And that's 
that's a challenge that you don't necessarily face in a lot of other types of polling. If I could just add to that. And so technically speaking, we have a model on top of a survey. So we have a survey, which is representative of the population. And then we're modeling from that survey data who will vote on election day or who will vote now because we have early voting. Um, and so typically, I would say in 80 to 85% of the cases with elections, not just here in the United States, but, but globally, when they fall down, they fall down. Why? Because we were unable to predict who will show up on election day, who will vote. So it's the modeling aspect that's problematic that at times we get wrong. Um, it's not the instrument of the survey or the poll that, that is problematic. The great challenges you know, we all face in this opinion, public opinions, are really twofold, right? One is, uh, as both of you said about, you know, in the in the, in the survey literature, you have a technical term that your surveyed population is not your targeted population, and the target population is constantly moving. And in fact, uh, at the time of your survey, uh, nobody knows what that public opinion will be because the public opinion changes, particularly in election, any news, any things come out, right? So you have that grand challenge. And the second challenge, which is related to the to the survey part, is people's opinions, they may or may not give you their honest opinion, not necessarily even their lying, because they have not formulated the right opinion. They refuse to answer you. That creates quite a bit of bias it's, you know, itself. So you really have these kind of big problems, you know, right there. But I would say that uh, it's a both a challenge, but it's also a great opportunity, right? But I want to follow up uh, one thing. I think, uh, Cliff, you mentioned about the posters are the guardians of the public opinions. But I think also uh, you're not only the guardians, you're also the discoverers of the public opinions. Like a lot of us think about other, how other people, you know, think about those uh, those things. For example, we all may think about, you know, some of people just don't understand the climate change, others do. And as you uh, know, that Google and YouTube have just said they're going to ban this paid uh, uh, content on the show climate change the denial uh, but you guys actually do something to learn about what the public is really thinking and so i want to just ask you that uh, what you have learned about for example climate change and who who it affects so you know i would say as a pollster if i had one question uh, to put on a poll that would be people's priorities and so what are the most important uh -huh. issues Right. And I love that question. Why do I love that question? Because whether it be in the United States or whether it be in other countries where I where I work as well, it's extremely stable over time. There's a lot yeah. of stability to it. And it's extremely predictive. And indeed, some of the evidence that we have shows that the candidate that's strongest on the main issue wins approximately 80 to 85 percent of the time. In other words, it's a proof point of the importance of public opinion in determining, in predicting, in, in conditioning outcomes. And so we look at that question all the time. So what is the main issue? And so more specifically, just, just in recent past, COVID obviously has swamped everything else out. And if we take the case of the United States as an example, Biden rode the COVID wave in, he won on COVID, he surfed the wave on COVID, and as the Delta variant um, kind of rears its ugly head, he's hitting choppy waters. I use that because what we're looking at specifically when doing a sort of evaluation are what are the main problems, right? We ask people that. Climate change specifically before COVID was an issue that at the global level, not necessarily the US level, but the global level had been one that had been increasing monotonically, though slightly, now with huge leaps over the last 10 years, right? 
Um, but we see the same sort of thing in the United States now. And so as COVID recedes in importance, other bigger issues like the economy come to the fore. Uh, the Biden administration and other political actors are being evaluated on, evaluated on it. But climate change specifically, is this issue that's there and it's emergent? Um, we'll see what happens in the near future. But we're of the opinion that, that as we come out of COVID, it will be one of these issues that defines the contours of public opinion. Krista, you have anything to add on that? Yeah, I, I like the idea of thinking about it in terms of issue salience because I do lots of issue polling. Um, I have a number of clients that are in the kind of issue advocacy space. And let's say, for instance, you are a group that's right of center, but you want to have some messaging on climate change. I do a lot of work in that, that sort of space. Um, you know, I can do a survey that finds 80% of Americans, I'm, I'm making up a number, but it's it's actually, I'm sure, really close to, to what the real number is, uh, you know, say that they want to see Congress do more on clean energy. And that's wonderful. But if that's the 17th issue on their list of priorities, that is also an extremely important strategic fact that my client needs to know. Mm-hmm. 80, 90% mm-hmm. of people want to get, you know, universal background checks for guns. Yes, but how salient is that issue for that 90%? Because I am I guarantee you for the 10% that disagree, it's very salient. Mm-hmm. So this is why I think those, those priority questions are so important. And, ha- and they can also help you understand something like Joe Biden's falling job approval. You know, we, we ask people to give us what they think their most important issue is. But this month in our last survey, we didn't just ask people if they approved or disapproved of Joe Biden, but we said, Okay, regardless of whether you approve or disapprove of him, what's the issue that you think he's doing the best at? Mm -hmm. And then regardless of whether you approve or disapprove of him, what do you think is the issue he is doing the worst at? And among both people that approve and disapprove of him, they would say COVID is probably his best issue. So, you know, if suddenly his handling of COVID is getting worse, but that's the thing people think he's doing best, of course, his numbers are going to begin going down. There's nothing else to support them. Um, Meanwhile, uh, in terms of things that people think he's doing poorly at, the economy and immigration were were up there as the things that people are the most concerned about, even among immigration, even among some of those who approve of him overall. Um, But I guess the question is, how much is that already baked into his numbers if people don't like how he's handled those issues? But immigration is not a top issue for, say, a swing voter. Maybe that won't bring his numbers down. Can I just just add just a couple more technical points, just be, just to reinforce why I love this question? Um, it, it not only is predictive, as I was mentioning before, uh, the wave over wave correlation is about 0.9. Um, and that's at a global level. That's, that's the global average of 27 countries. And, and the correlation varies from 0.85 to 0.98. And so in the short term to medium term, it's as if it were a fixed variable. That's the first thing. The second thing is it's correlated with real things. Um, and so if unemployment is number one, it's because there's a lot of unemployment. If immigration is number one, there's a lot of stuff going on with immigration. If terrorism is number one, there's something going on with terrorism, right? Uh, it reflects reality because it reflects what humans, people are worried about. And so going back to your climate change point, uh, we have other research and other tracking research that shows that increasingly people are being exposed to climactic change, to climactic disasters. Mm -hmm. That is behaviorally speaking in in, in reality. And that corresponds with the slow but steady uptick of climate change as an issue. Now, to to Kristen's point, it is not a a number one issue, number two issue. It's still a tertiary issue. It's not going to define politics today. But if we play it out in the future 
And we know that these questions, um, these metrics, these rubrics we use to understand public opinion are correlated with reality. Climate change is an emergent issue. You know, when we're talking about like what's correlated with reality and what are sort of the biggest issues that we see in our time, one thing I hear about all the time, and I know it's written about all the time, is you know, the amount of political polarization that we have right now in America. We have people saying relationships or friendships are breaking up over political polarization, or people are saying they're going to leave the country if this president wins or that president wins, or not going to buy something from a company because they've supported one political candidate. Is this real? You know, is this actually happening? Is this the biggest issue? Is this what people care about the most? Well, this is another one of those things where if you ask Americans, do you believe that we are too divided? They'll almost all say yes. If you say, do we need to do something to bring everyone together? They'll overwhelmingly say yes. And then when you follow up and ask them how we achieve that, it is, I want the other side to do more of what I want them to do. <laughs> that is how we will we will achieve consensus when the other side starts doing the things I want them to do. Um, I, I say that a little bit, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit glib about it, but but that that really is, you That's know, a lot of, of what we see in research is that, you know, on the one hand, there's tons of data that people say they're hungry for bipartisanship, they're exhausted by the the toxicity, and they want it to end. But at the same time, there are so many different forces driving it. It is not as though you can one day just wake up and snap your fingers or pass one bill or one company changes its policies and suddenly this all goes away. This is a culmination of a lot of different things. It's a culmination of, you know, news get becoming more fragmented and people no longer mm -hmm. all getting news from the same source. And so now, in addition to getting news from sources that may reflect their own partisan views, you're also seeing the sorts of things that algorithms on social media are more likely to get engagement, which engagement usually means clicks and reactions, which is more often driven by anger and frustration than by, gee, this made me really think. You know, that's one piece of it. You've now got um, a younger cohort of consumers that they increasingly, their politics are bleeding into their shopping habits. It's bleeding into where they want to work, their expectations of their employer, et cetera. And there's an older generation that's grappling with how to deal with that. Politics is seeping into so many different arenas of life. And I think it's important to note that, at least in the research that I've done, the polarization does not seem to be that 50% of Americans believe one set of things and 50% of Americans believe another set of things and there's no nothing in between and they disagree on everything. There are lots of Americans that hold heterodox views. They take a little of column A and a little of column B on policy. But instead, it's this feeling that the other side represents a grave threat to my way of life. It's just that heightened negative emotion. I was uh, on a panel yesterday at a, a university in New York where one of my co-panelists said that nowadays, and, and I don't have this data, so I'm hesitant to cite it, but it was just so jaw-dropping to me, that there is now more social opposition to inter-party marriage than there are to things that over the last hundred years, like interfaith marriage or, you know, I know your liberties may like crazy. looking at me like that's crazy. I'm making these faces like this is but nuts. I, but it, in a way it's jaw-dropping and in a way it actually isn't that surprising when you see the fact that the, especially the most politically engaged feel very just angry and afraid of the other side. Man, you don't want to bring the wrong party home to meet dad and mom for dinner, I guess. That will ruin the party. You know? <laughs> <laughs> or make it more exciting. Who knows? Well, this is, uh, um, yeah, this is the first time I heard this issue of inter-party marriage. I guess I sh 
should have thought about. And uh, these topics do uh, bring people to their emotions, you know, you know, very high. Let me uh, uh, switch the topic a little bit because I want to really talk more about how do we ensure the quality of the polling. Uh, in the end, I think you know one thing I hope will help. Uh, everyone is to say these polling reflect reality that they are they're trustworthy themselves. Otherwise, people cite whatever they want to cite that they divide even more so. There's a two sides of this question, and I probably go with Cliff first again because uh, I uh, recently got involved in a study about survey results on the vaccination you know uptake. And we look at Facebook surveys, we look at census poll surveys, as well as Cliff's organization, the Ipsos surveys, and uh, probably surprised too many, many people, didn't surprise me at all, because I've been doing this research, that it turns out the smallest survey, which is the Ipsos survey, that worked out really the best, almost spot on compared to the CDC, the benchmark data. And uh, it's it's one of these cases really um, highlights the importance of the quality control and um what we have learned, uh, Cliff, the part of our study was trying to look at, is there any single factor matters, but our conclusion was based on all the information we have is adjusting this, adjusting that, every single factor didn't really make much difference. It's the aggregation of what we call total quality control that really seems made a, you know, made a difference. But that's a, a part of my question I want to ask Cliff and later uh, Christine is really about uh, uh, what are these uh, kind of a time-honored methods that you're using to ensure the quality of the posters you are, you are conducting? At the same time, I also want to ask, what is the innovation side? Uh, because time is changing with availability of social media. Lots of things are changing. In the end, it's all about the quality uh, improvement, but one is the kind of a time-tested method. One is the, the more uh, emerging, you know, better, you know, because the new uh, media, uh, you know, technology. Cliff, love to get your... Uh, feedback on that. Great. And so just, I'll, I guess I'll just jump in. So um, I would say there's error and then there's error, right? Okay. And I mean, I, that's pretty profound or maybe really superficial, but I'm um, not quite sure. But basically there's the margin of error, which is one thing, um, which has to do with, let's say, uh, sample noise or sample hiccups, right? As I like to say. And then there's non-sampling error. And there's a whole mm-hmm. host of non-sampling errors. Um, there's bias, right? Mm-hmm. Are you covering the universe in question? Coverage bias. The people who refuse to participate in your survey, are they different from those that don't refuse? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's another form of error. You have a whole host of measurement error. Right? Are your questions robust and unbiased, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I would say sort of, you know, the bread and butter of survey research is still there. That is, it's minimizing these different sorts of error. And obviously, you don't need a huge sample, to have control over the quality of your survey if you're implementing methods and have a design which is minimizing these other sorts of error and bias. And so a very sort of short answer to an important question is we employ, and best practices suggest that you should employ a multitude of methods to minimize these sorts of errors. A measurement error, good questions, making sure you cover the entire population in question, making sure you really get after people who refuse or don't respond to your surveys, because, oh, by the way, that information is important when coming up with an estimate. And so that's just the bread and butter of, of survey research and well done. And, and the, the example you cite, I believe it's our Axios Ipsos survey that yes. we do almost every week that we're, we're tracking from the get-go, the onset and the evolution of the pandemic has a short questionnaire and uh, a small sample of a thousand. And so it's not about the size. Once again, exactly. the size of the survey 
determines the margin of error and only the margin of error, not these other sorts of errors. And so I think we always conceptually uh, need to consider that uh, when we're, we're assessing the total error involved in, in any given survey. You're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, one thing I want to just mention is one example of how well you guys do the quality control. I believe that you actually buy laptops for those who have troubles to have them. And that kind of thing, you know, make, seems costly something, but that really matters because it's a part of the effort of the, you know, of the quality control of uh, avoiding bias. Yeah, it goes to coverage bias, right? I mean, right, you exactly. could have a cheaper design where you exclude people that don't have digital access. Right. Uh, in our case, we make sure that those that don't have it, right? Yeah. And, you know, for most surveys, it doesn't really matter. But for some, when you're talking about the general population, and when you're talking about a subset of the population that might be more affected, poorer people more affected by COVID, as an example, um, you're probably missing out and your estimates are not as robust. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly in the COVID, that seems quite clear. The rural areas, others, you know, the sense of post survey suffer similar problems of the and to cover these areas was just hard to reach. And uh, and so turn to uh, Kristen. Yeah, so I, I think my firm Echelon is in a little bit of a different position because we don't have a panel of our own. You know, we don't have a set group of people that we have recruited to take surveys that we can we can tap into. So we, for the most part, are relying on other panels that others have have cultivated, and whether that's you know, something like what Cliff is describing, you know, there are a number of different firms out there where they've done that rigorous work of making sure that people have laptops, they've contacted them, you know, via mail so that there's no, you know, technological reason why someone could not be accessible. Um, and they've built a panel in that way. And then there are other, you know, firms that we we tap for other projects where if you need something much quicker and your client has a very small budget and you give them the trade-offs of here's what you're going to get and here's what you're That's not going to get, you know, that you have to go with that. Now, there are some things where there are polls that will pop up in the media. And to your point about sample size, it will kind of drive me crazy because it'll be a survey that was done in one night. It's on an issue that popped up in the news yesterday. Mm-hmm. And the sample size is 2000. And everybody's like, oh, it's a great poll. The sample size is 2000. The margin of error is small. It must be fine. And I'm like, man, I'll tell you what, I know how long it takes me to get a thousand registered voters or even a thousand adults in a survey and feel confident in it. I'm not saying that I'm skeptical of it because you got that many people that fast, but something about that just seems real quick to me, you know? So (laughs) there's, but on the other hand, some of these panels that are very rigorous and and do great work. If I go to a client and I say, well, this is how much that survey is going to cost and you'll get your data three weeks from now. They're like, sorry, that does not actually help me. And so the challenge that I I think people should understand is that in the polling world, there are trade-offs between the amount of resources you're going to commit to doing the work well, the length of time that it's going to take, the amount of confidence you can have in your results, and not every client is going to have the same calculation on that front. So what we have to do is we set, you know, here's our standards below this. You need to go find someone else. Like we're we're not going to do a poll that cheap, that fast. We're, we're not your people, but we are also, you know, within the boundaries of what we're comfortable with trying to juggle, okay, how can we get the best research possible in a way that's going to fit this client's budget as effectively as possible? Um, how much precision do they really need? Do they really, really, really need to have it be extremely perfect? Or is this something where they just really want a quick gut check and it's okay if it's if it's more sort of quick and dirty. Um, So that's something that I think people don't realize about the way sort of a consulting pollster like me, who we don't have our own panel, kind of thinks about that decision-making process. 
I think this is a great point. Uh, Kristen's point is a great point. And I just I will re- reframe it just a little bit. So we have a diverse base of clients. I'd say probably 80% or more like Kristen's. And they're just interested in understanding things ordinarily. So like, is it big or small? Is it going up or down? Should I be worried about it? Shouldn't I be worried about it? And there, the method doesn't have to be a perfect method. It just has to be good enough. And I think that's okay, right? On the flip side, if you're the CDC and you need to estimate the prevalence of glaucoma in the population, well, and you're going to allocate billions of dollars to the government, given that estimate, that estimate better be really, really, really precise, like precise and accurate, both, like both. And so therefore you need a, a more rigorous method. And so, you know, um, it's really all about fit for purpose. And the fit for purpose is defined by what the client needs. You know, I think that both of you, you raised an incredibly interesting point, Christine, particularly your like a client say, well, I don't have time for three weeks. I, you know, I want something fast. We talk about the public kind of a, you know, lack of trust in terms of polls. On the other hand, there's the other side. The people tend to have too much trust in any data, right? The idea is, oh, you know, just it's a data, it's fine. Give me something that I need to get this thing done. Well, you know, if it's a serious issue for them, right, you're not going to say, oh, you know, because, you know, because I have this disease, I don't care who treats me, just give me something, you know, that, that, that doesn't work well, right? So I think that there is a, there's a general education issue about how do we make sure the public understand that good polls takes a lot of work. Right. I mean, because people have the notion, just as Kristen, you said, it's, oh, I find 2,000 people, fine. You know, it's great. There's a, this is actually, I really blame the statistician for, right? We create these formulas, one over N, you know, 2,000 seems, you know, great, right? So there's a lot of sort of education issues. I, I think it's really about public understanding. Maybe you guys, you guys can do a poll on the public understanding of the survey itself uh, in terms of the, how do they view the qualities, you know, how they think of, the, the right trade-off, right? And, you know, in the byproduct, you would understand I'm willing to be a little bit more, wait a little bit longer. But here is like, what's a trade-off here? I, I think it'll be very, very interesting to know that. You know, it makes me think when you guys are talking about all of these polls you do, you know, I think most of the American public is thinking polls, that's elections. But you guys do polls for tons of different things, for companies, you know, who likes crunchy versus creamy peanut butter. But what would be the most surprising? When did you do a poll and you were just like, when the results just shocked you. I could tell you the poll that I've done most recently where I was the most apprehensive about them going out into the world. And that's a survey that we did at my company back in February. This was one of those, how concerned are you about various issues polls? But in this case, we didn't just ask people to pick their top issue. We gave a list of of issues and then asked people to rate their relative concern. We gave a bunch of issues to everybody in the sample. And then for sort of space and economy reasons, Anybody who was a Republican got a a separate set of issues and everybody who was a Democrat got a separate set of issues. And then, you know, you could still compare apples to apples because we were using the same scale for everything. And we found that among Republicans, you know, the top issues were things like illegal immigration, lack of support for the police and liberal media bias. And for Democrats, the top issues were COVID-19, spread of COVID-19 infections, but then Donald Trump supporters was among the top concerns. And putting that out in the world made me very apprehensive because it wound up being the sort of thing that validated for people why they were so worried about the other side. It was this perfect Rorschach test that for Republicans, they would say, see, look, this poll proves that Democrats hate us and are out to get us. And Democrats would see the poll and they would say, see, look, this proves that Republicans are all living in fantasy land and they've got these irrational concerns and they 
want to take America back to the dark ages. And it was seeing this poll kind of go a little viral, but everybody seeing it through the worst possible lens was very, very, very disconcerting to me as a pollster. And it, you know, you want to put data out there to inform people about what's going on, but it made me really consider, is there a way in which actually putting data out there can make America worse? That is fascinating. I never would have even thought about it. Sort of the ethical concerns of putting out the truth in a sense. Yeah, that's interesting. I just, just that this is a riff off that the challenge is not just having unbiased questions. Cause I think we'd all do a pretty good job of not tweaking the questions in such a way that biases the blue way or the red way or whatever, or the purple way, whatever it might be. It's having biased frames, right? That's a big challenge today. And so if you do a poll that's related to Black Lives Matter and leave out law and order, are you biasing the way we look at the issue as a whole, given the fact that the American population sees it in such distinct ways? And um, that's a challenge. And so I, I can understand the, the apprehension on Kristen's side. I mean, um, these are charged issues and, and we have to worry about bias frames. We do that all the time here at Ipsos, not making sure just, just the questions are unbiased, but that we the bucket of questions we ask are balanced, right? But, but to your initial question, um, I would say, you know, look, thinking back on my career as a pollster, there's a few moments, and I'm sure that Kristen has the same sort of experience, where you know you have a poll that no one else has, and you're looking at the data wow. for the first time. And it's it's like, um, it's a it's almost a, it's a spiritual experience knowing I know this thing, and no nice. one else knows it, because no one else has it. I know it. Um, obviously that happens a lot in elections. Sometimes it's very, very substantive. And so we just did the summer, um, early summer, a poll on differential ethnic and racial experience in America, right? It's sort of the, the one year lead up to the George Floyd murder and aftermath. And we created really cool batteries, not just about attitudes and your typical political things, but experience with different life circumstances being pulled over by police as an example, or not being able to pay rent uh, for a given month or, you know, a series of different experiences. And once again, just the, you know, the massive ethnic and racial differences in the U.S. And we've been talking about the tale of two Americas a lot here, whether it be political or ethnic racial or otherwise, we've got a lot of differences, variability and equality. And it wasn't like it was information that would move markets because sometimes we have information and I do a lot of polling in emerging markets, basically for the financial sector. Um, you have information at that given moment that might move markets. That's cool. But this was an example more of a substantive understanding and lens. Uh, we thought we had something very unique and it. it played really well in the media and was picked up um, on the academic side as well. These are the moments that really define or, or make it for me to be to be a pollster not getting elections wrong obviously that's the worst the best are these these micro moments has there ever been a time where either of you guys have decided not to release the results because you thought it might be damaging or too misleading or something i mean is there ever a decision to say we're just not going to put this out there the only times that we've ever produced data that we intended to release publicly and then did not are on the very rare instances when something comes back and the result looks really strange. And then you realize, oh, we didn't add this piece of phrase to the sentence. And it got through every one of our checkers here. And yet 
the question we thought we were asking is not what we actually asked. And so it's for, in our case, it's, it's really only, was there something that we technically messed up that therefore we should just scrap this number? Not because we asked it and we asked it properly and we got a number we didn't like, that's not a reason to withhold it. What can be scary, and this was a, a phenomenon, I, I believe this is something that affected the British pollsters uh, back a couple of years ago, Cliff, that you remember hurting, where there was a, a sense that there were some pollsters that had done some election polling and the results had been outside of the mainstream. It, they were far away from what the polling averages said. And so some pollsters kind of sat on their data and said, I'm worried that I got this wrong because my numbers look strange. And it turned out that those numbers were actually right, that everybody sort of hurting together around an average meant that you were only getting data that reinforced the existing narrative. And that is something I am proud to say at my firm, we have never done, but that is one instance where you can think of pollsters that did come out afterwards and say, yeah, we sat on this data because we were worried we had messed something up, but actually we were probably right and should have put it out in the world. Going back to this idea of what's most surprising, I can't remember whether it was, it was either Bobby Kennedy or Teddy Roosevelt who said 20% of people will disagree with anything. Like anything you put out there, they'll disagree with. Is there anything they don't? Is there, is, is there any place where that quote is wrong? Mothers are not very controversial. When you reach out to a broader family, it becomes more controversial. But when you ask about mothers, not so much so. Kristen, maybe you have something. Yeah, well, I, I can speak to that. I've been doing some polling recently for, for some groups around, you know, issues like childcare, paid leave, et cetera, which you would think would be relatively polarizing issues and certainly how you achieve policies in those spaces can be, but just the fact that, you know, when you do polling on issues related to motherhood, you do find that a lot of those sort of partisan differences begin to melt away. I wouldn't say things are getting 95% agreement across parties, but that you do see some of those, those disagreements uh, fade. Oh, veterans, veterans, like issues on veterans. And so you say you have these sort of institutions or professions or groups that like really still unify. Indeed, one could even make the argument when we think about our uh, polarized times, uh, the only way you're going to do that is from the family out. Because I can go and like, I can identify with someone different from me politically about our families, about our kids playing baseball, for instance, as an example, or soccer as an example, maybe not about anything else. Um, but, but again, you still have these institutions which are unifying rather than um, polarizing. I want to uh, follow up with Cliff. Cliff, you mentioned about this very important point. It's not just about a biased question. That's it's kind of easy to correct. Is the is the framing? And you talk about uh, how your company is trying to do that internally to make sure you don't have that biased frame. Can you say a little bit more? How do you achieve that? Because the reason I'm asking this is that a lot of these biased frames is people's like you know subconscious, right? Because you know all posters, we're humans. We have our ideology. We have our views. How do you achieve internally that kind of people say, okay, now put our whatever we're thinking aside, it's it's really forgetting the right public opinion, not trying to bias one with the other. How do you achieve that? Well, first and foremost, I think just by listening. Mm-hmm. And so we have, you know, listen, I, I'm Kristen's probably the same. When we put out a poll, we get a gajillion responses about them. Some good, some mostly all bad. And mm-hmm. um, just taking that feedback just from the broader public and from individuals that, that you know that are closer to you. Um, that's the first thing. And we noticed over the course of time or the last few years that there was more of that sort of feedback. Second is being aware of it, like aware that there's a problem, just knowing that if we only ask questions, you know, let's say once again on Black Lives Matter and there's nothing else there, it's going to show one part of the story, not the, the total story. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean we don't do it that way. We only ask about you know one side of the story because for whatever reason, it's important to understand that. And I, I think that having you know uh, teams that are trained in this, that reflect on this, that that are diverse um, mm-hmm. in viewpoints, I think all that matters. It's very qualitative. It's much more, I would say, softer touch or softer skills. But I do think we have an obligation as pollsters in a highly polarized environment to try to release polls that are balanced overall and don't like take a whack at one side or, or the other. And it's, and it's extremely difficult and it's only getting more difficult to be quite frank um, to do that. But it, I believe going back to the initial point I was making, we are the guardians of public opinion. We have a responsibility to the best of our abilities to represent uh, public opinion. And in today's polarized world, it's understanding that there are multiple frames, multiple views on an issue, and we shouldn't delegitimize one versus the other. I do think that what we are doing is very important. And when Cliff talks about us being sort of the guardians of public opinion, I think the reason why that matters so much in a democracy is especially given how large and diverse our country is these days. You have a lot of folks who are in elected office who the only time they really get to hear from their voters is every two to four to six years if you're in the Senate. And in between that two, four and six year check-in with the electorate, what they're hearing from are donors, they're hearing from lobbyists, they're hearing from those who have the resources to engage in, you know, organize people around their cause. They're hearing from people who are activists for whom they have the time and resources to step away from family life and raising kids and doing their jobs to go be activists. And that's all great things, but that's not necessarily a representative sample of where people are at. And so we do have this, I I frankly view it as a pretty sacred responsibility So we're in a representative democracy. If our policymakers and leaders are trying to figure out where people are at, we are the last best tool they have for really genuinely understanding a representative sample, not just the loudest voices or the richest voices, but a representative sample of the people to whom they are they are accountable. Um, and that means we've really got to make sure we're getting it right and not leaving anybody out. Well, thank you so much for the point. And I really cannot, you know, uh, you know, agree more on, on, on what you just said. And I want to add, that's just not only the responsibility of the posters, it's a responsibility for all data scientists. I think, you know, that is our responsibility. We are the guardians <laughs> of the truth, if there's still such a concept. But I think uh, we all do our best. But uh, I do want to post our last question. It's the one that we always ask, very much like Cliff, you said, you always ask a question, what's the priority? What's on people's mind? We always ask a question for all our guests. If you can wave your magic wand, like what would be the one thing you wish, now particularly in your case, as a poster, that will make your life easier? 100% response rates. Everybody. Aha, that's if what a poster that. calls you, if a survey pops up in your inbox, please take it. That would be that would make things so much easier. I mean, I can't disagree with that. Man, you're just stealing. I, I would just take. Idea. I would take. I know. I I would just take eighty percent. That's uh-huh. fine. <laughs> No, you're, you're, not you're, too greedy. Agreed. Yeah, agreed. I'm not too. I mean, like, yeah, because that's basically almost anything. Everything when it comes to um, when it comes to the quality of of our service. Obviously, there's other sorts of error, but yeah, that resolves a lot of issues. Well, thank you so much for this. Not only just wonderful, but it's very insightful. But it's also 
very very motivating uh you know conversation particularly your last point how we are all guardians of the truth thank you very much Thanks, thank guys. you thanks for listening to this episode of the harvard data science review take care